This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Grass Valley's Edius 6. Check out the new Edius 6 at www.grassvalley.com. This episode is also brought to you by Black Magic Design. The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve 8 from Black Magic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve 8 is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagic-design.com Welcome to a night of total terror. Welcome to a very special cutting room. This is the Halloween edition of our cutting room. And with me tonight is going to be Michael Doherty. Now, we did do the live event last week. And if you tuned in, you probably heard some noise issues. Not to worry, we've actually, what we did was we were having issues with the feed. So we pulled the feed, grabbed our cameras, and we shot some stuff, as well as recorded on a separate audio device. So we actually might be tossing this up on our podcast, the uh, panel. And we'll probably also be releasing a video in a couple weeks. Now, when you start listening to this episode of The Cutting Room, this very special episode, it's important to point out that uh, Michael and I were supposed to meet at a coffee shop. And that coffee shop was quite packed. So we ended up walking down the street and finding another coffee shop, which was closed. So we kept uh, looking and we finally found a coffee shop, which wasn't as noisy as the other one, but it's still pretty noisy. So, I'm sorry about the background noise, but please enjoy my interview with George Romero's editor, Michael Doherty. A night with the dead who cannot die. How'd you get started in film, but also in film editing? Um, I went to Simon Fraser University. Originally, I had a degree in business from Concordia, but I was kind of bored with the options were for me, so I made a list of the six things in life that I enjoyed. And then I just picked one of them, and film was the one that I thought I'd have as much fun learning as making money at. So I applied to the film school at Simon Fraser, and I got a second degree. And in my last year, as I was leaving Simon Fraser, the people there asked me if I wanted to work in the uh, film department. I was basically running the equipment division and handling budgets for the student films. And I took the job because it gave me an opportunity to access the equipment that they had available for stuff that I was planning to do. And I got a start with some of the dance choreographers at Simon Fraser who asked me to shoot and edit their projects. And word kind of spread. Other people started hiring me. There was a professor in the criminology department who was looking for somebody to direct and produce point of view documentaries for the criminology department through the Knowledge Network in BC. And so I ended up doing videos on capital punishment, on legalization of marijuana and prostitution, on midwifery, on Canada's role in the UN and NATO after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And I always found that after I had shot the material and put it all together that I'd have a hell of a lot of fun editing it myself. I mean, I could also pay myself twice as director and then also as editor. But that's where it really came together for me was when I'd sit in the edit room and put all the ideas together. And I ended up, as a result of that, getting an opportunity to take a course that was sponsored by the BC government. I was in Vancouver at the time. 
to train editors on the montage, which was an early hybrid system, a digital and analog system that TV series were using at the time. And in Vancouver, they were trying to keep some of the post-production in the city rather than having it all go to Los Angeles. So they were going to train people to do this. And it was during the course that um, a company in Vancouver had invested in the first Avid. And they were looking for somebody to operate. And they had put the word out to the guy teaching the course who they would recommend as an editor. And he picked me and said that I was the quickest to learn, which is you know, nice to hear. So they offered me a job. So I ended up working on the first Avid in Vancouver doing mostly corporate related uh, projects. At the time, I was also producing a program about a very famous law case called Donahue versus Stevenson. Um, it's the first case that law students learn in their first year in tort law. So a friend and I went over to Glasgow, which is where the case happened. And we had shot over two summers and I had a lot of material and I was looking for somewhere to edit this and I got a chance to take a job in Toronto for a guy that was also investing in his first ad and was looking for somebody to produce his show for them. And so I figured maybe it's time to leave Vancouver. I had a chance to operate this system in Toronto. I could cut my own show and I knew of a friend who was getting the money together to do his first feature. So I knew that I could come to Toronto, work on this system, get paid to produce this show, and be able to edit this guy's first feature without charging it, because I was making money already. And I think that's one of the ways that you get to know what you're doing, is you just keep working at it. And so I took on this job, the price was right for this producer, and he liked what I did. So after I finished that film, he offered me a producing job, but also the editing job on his next feature shooting in Montreal. As a result of that experience that if you're good at what you do people start to see you are capable and you get referred to them or they can see the movie and say listen do you want to do this and over the next few years I started getting more feature projects and it just kind of snowballed. I've been pretty busy now for maybe 14 years uh, without really stopping. The opportunity to work with George Romero came along in 2004, he was looking for an editor for Land of the Dead. It's a universal project, and he had decided to shoot in Toronto. We'd had a good experience here with his film Bruiser, which had been shot in 2000. So they were looking to find a local editor. They had done the numbers and discovered that by bringing in the editor he'd worked with before, who was now in Los Angeles, it was going to cost probably an extra $100,000 because there's per diems, airfares, hotels, plus a U.S. rate on the fee. And so they went shopping for and they looked at the demo tapes of editors at the Directors Guild. I got a call one day and was asked, do you want to come in and interview with George Romero for the editing job on Land of the Dead? I thought, well, they just, they're probably just looking to interview Canadian editors so they could say they didn't find anybody so they could bring yeah. the U.S. guy in. So, you know, I hadn't seen his films. I'd heard about his films a lot and, in fact, had a couple of them that I hadn't yet watched. Night of the Living Dead, of course. Yeah. So that night I watched Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, went into the interview the next day. The first thing George said when he walked in to the interview room was, so have you cut my film yet? And I said, well, you know, in my head I have, and maybe that's what it did it. I mean, I didn't hear from them for six weeks, but apparently they really liked me. And I think what the interview was really about was not necessarily trying to figure out whether I was capable enough as an editor, but did I have the personality to spend six months alone in a room with George? And they decided that I did. 
I think that they had to do some negotiating with Universal because Universal has a list and I'm not on their list or wasn't on their list. And I think what happened is that they had also contested George's choice for DOP. And I know that they had been pushing for their own guy that had done the second unit work on Dawn of the Dead, the remake. And uh, I think, I can't be sure about this, but perhaps what happened was that uh, they said, listen, we'll give you your DOP, you give us the editor we want. And part of the argument, I think, is that you know if you shoot for two weeks with the DOP you don't like, you have to reshoot. If you don't like what the editor's doing, you just fire him. It doesn't cost you anything. Universal said, sure, we'll go for that. And so we spent probably five months cutting land and flew to Los Angeles to show it to the Universal executives, and they were very happy. George had decided at the time that uh, he was going to move to Toronto for various reasons, the politics in the United States. I think that uh, he liked it up here. He knew he'd be shooting more projects here. So he came to live up here and over the next year uh, developed Diary of the Dead. George tends to be very loyal, so I was on board early on with that one. They brought me in at the script stage and uh, we shot that, I guess it was in 2006, I guess it was, in the fall of 2006. And again, it was a probably six month edit overall. George likes to keep me on through the whole process of not just picture editing, but then through the sound, post, color correction, all of that. And I stayed on him through the next one, which was Survival of the Dead. Hopefully next year he'll have another one coming up. We'll see. Uh, you know, George is now 71 years old and at some point he may just go, you know, I'd rather just sit at home and read a book. But he could be like uh, Lenny Rupenstahl and make it to 101 still making films. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Two questions I had. One was, uh, what were the other things on your list? Because you created that list. Oh, geez, well, architecture mm -hmm. is something I've always been interested in. I mean, one of the reasons that I picked the film as well is because it allowed me to potentially investigate all of these other interests at the same time. So one of the other things on the list was, was uh, become a lawyer. I have a mind that sort of works that way. And as it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, we have this program that I have sold with my friend David Hay, who's a lawyer in Vancouver, sold it to universities around the Commonwealth. So in Hong Kong and in India and UK, New Zealand. And it allowed me to do some investigating in the legal field. Architecture, uh, photography is another one. I'm still working as a photographer, mostly doing stuff that I myself enjoy. I, I don't shoot it necessarily commercially, but I, I shoot kind of design-oriented, uh, make design-oriented images. A lot of them architecturally based. Sort of the theoretical physics world, cosmology, and but it's harder to get into that field, you know. Yeah, so, but <laughs> there was a program that I wanted to develop based on perception. That's still a possibility mm -hmm. that will allow me to explore the interests that I have in the uh, in cosmology and uh, how we perceive the world and how true our perceptions of things really are. Uh, I can't remember what the other one was. There was another one in there. I have to think yeah. about it. And well, my other question was: after you interviewed with George Romero, did you have to do an interview with the studio, or did you? No, the interview I did was with George, was with Peter Grunwald, his producing partner. Bernie Goldman was a, an executive for Atmosphere out of Los Angeles. They were the financiers, or I guess the U.S. production company, financed through Universal. Uh, there were two other people in the room. And so that was, in a sense, my 
interview with the studio. It was a negative pickup by Universal, I believe, which means that they didn't necessarily have specific creative input. They had the ability to make suggestions. But I had so to impress that. those executives at that meeting. I'd like to talk to you about, in particular, horror films, it, building that scare. Because whenever we're cutting a scene, there's sort of, you have to build up to it. And I was wondering what your approach was to building a moment that'll scare an audience. You know, uh, there's a couple of ways to do it. One of the things that I like to say to George, when we did Land, one of the things that we did was that we would have jumps in the film that would come out of nowhere and cause people to rise six inches off their seat. But one of the things that really works, if you set up that that's part of your style, is to then create the environment where you're expecting to jump and then don't deliver it. And so like a, almost like a false... Yeah. And so you never, the audience never really knows. It can't be predicted. I'm also a fan of atmospheres and letting moments sit and letting it sit possibly quietly. There, are, there's a, there was a scene in... Um, in land where they go into a bar or into a liquor store and there's a jump in that one but initially the idea is to set up again that false expectation by slowly having the camera moving around the corners and then revealing what's there so you don't know as the camera pans whether you're going to reveal something that might jump at you but it doesn't yeah and certainly the use of sound is incredibly important in all of that there's a scene in, uh, yeah, it might be in Diary. It is in Diary when they go into a basement and all you hear is the sound of water dripping and the character is walking through with his camera, not sure where he's going, it's really dark. And the atmosphere in there, again, it's, there's a little bit of music, but when I did the temp, what I did was put in an atmosphere track, added the water, and then put in a tone underneath that was sort of musical, but wasn't. Sort of like a drone or just Kind more of like, like a drone, yeah. but it shifted a little bit in texture. So I guess, yeah, it's just trying to keep an audience off balance. How do you approach your first cut? You get all this rushes in. Do you like to sit with uh, George and go through that? Or? No, normally I do the whole thing initially myself. I read the script, obviously, the first time through. I get the continuity notes, and on the continuity notes, uh, I hope that they have circled takes or marked best take, or they can sometimes give me a direction and what they're thinking for a given scene. But normally it really is about what they actually shot. The page is your starting point, but it's what you see that you're really working with. And so I tend to work backwards from the last take. I know that the directors will usually keep shooting if they're unhappy or they haven't quite achieved what they want. The last take can sometimes just be the safety take, and it's the second to last take that's the best. But I will sit there and I will build the whole cut myself. And sometimes if there's something that I don't quite understand, particularly in a situation where there are visual effects and you're not entirely sure what some of the plates are supposed to be used for, then I'll go and I'll either ask the director or I'll ask uh, the visual effects supervisor, the post-production supervisor. But mostly I sit there and I cut to the script. I don't usually cut dialogue out at that time. You leave it all there. And maybe sometimes I tend to overcut a little bit because I have a lot of options and I'll allow the director to see some of the different angles in a given scene that we'll may afterwards cut back on. And I also, during the assembly stage, put in as many sound effects as I can and as much music as I can. Now, what happens if, because many times when we're working on a film as, as editors, 
the director has their vision and it might not be working. So how do you approach that situation with the director when they're sort of in love with the, the, pro the particular scene or particular moment, but the structure's not working well? It's a negotiation. Sometimes what you do is you try it out. You sit there with it for a week or two. You know, we watch the films start to finish many times. And over time, if something's not working, it generally becomes apparent. There's other times where my initial reaction to a choice might be negative, but over those period of a week or two, I'll watch it again and I'll say, you know, my in intuition was wrong. That's the right way to go. I think when you're editing something, there's not necessarily always the, a unique way to do it. You know, there's a number of different approaches to a given scene, and then you, you decide, your intuition takes you in a certain direction, and you massage it. And, you know, sometimes they bring another editor into a scene and they might recut it, and sometimes you make it better, sometimes you make it worse, and sometimes you just change it. One of the reasons that I think you get, I got picked by George is that there's never any confrontation. Mm -hmm. You know, the confrontation's usually with a studio or uh, an executive where they have a particular thing they want mm -hmm. and George does not want to do it. Now, as an editor, my job is to defend George's vision. Yeah. And working with George is great because he's never not had final say. And so we also will negotiate. I mean, we'll get our list of notes back from the studio and we'll attempt to do them all. And then at some point say, this is not going to work, here's why it's not going to work. And George will rely on me when I'm sitting there watching a scene to say, if I believe it's not working, to tell him why I don't think it's working. And if he understands that, he says, well, you're right. And he said, but let's just try it a little longer. So it really is the art of negotiation. And, but, and, and trying everything. Like not giving up. Trying and, everything. Yeah. You have to see everything. That's right. And so, I mean, you know, there are times when you get five hours of dailies. I mean, that's rare. But nowadays with HD yeah. cameras, it's a pain in the ass when they shoot with three cameras and they give you <laughs> multiple takes and they go back to ones without reslating and you've got to watch it all. But, I mean, that is part of the process. As long as the producers know when you're getting five hours of dailies a day that you're not going to deliver your editor's cut the day after they finish yeah. shooting. Yeah. They just have to know that. And George, when he shoots, it tends to be more classically arranged. And so I'm not getting five hours of dailies. He, a lot of times, knows ahead of time which direction he wants to go with a given scene. But then there's times afterwards when he'll say to me, oh, pilot error. I didn't get it. And what we've done, in each case with the three that I've done, we've always reserved two or three days at the end, after four months of cutting, to go back and pick things up. Now, with George, because you say he's a, almost like a classically trained director, when he moved into something like Diary of the Dead, uh, it's a very modern style of, of shooting. I guess what I would like to ask is, how did you approach cutting this particular type of footage? Because, in essence, we're supposed to get the idea that it's uncut, or it's sort of found footage, or that she's put together this stock inside the film. That's right. So how did you approach, I guess, breaking down the rushes, but also... It's interesting, you know, because the original plan was to play them all as long takes. It was scripted that way, and they shot it that way, so that it would be done as a series of single takes in between the different locations that the kids were going to. But we figured out pretty quickly that it was hard to sustain the momentum on, say, a seven-minute take, particularly hard on the actors who have to nail their line deliveries 
and have to be moving at a dialogue clip that's fast enough yeah. to keep the story moving forward. Very hard to do. Yeah. So we decided early on that we were going to cut it up, but that we were going to maintain the integrity of it so that any jump cuts that we did were logically sound. That we weren't going to do things that would be impossible to do. So like logically sound, you mean like, oh, the camera got knocked off or? Or they turned the camera off and turned it back on. That there were no shots in there that would have been incapable of this person shooting and somebody afterwards looking at and then for their own reasons deciding to cut it. Uh, no illogical shots. And um, we succeeded at that. Um, and I've had this conversation with George. Perhaps we should have pushed the envelope a little bit e further even and not worried about the logic of the cuts. Just worry about the logic of the energy in a given scene. You know, we're not convinced. Uh, yeah. You know, I know with a film like Cloverfield, if you watch that film, unfortunately it was released a few weeks before Diary of the Dead was because Diary was shot before and was picked up by the Weinsteins. And so we were inevitably compared to that film yeah. that had a budget that was 13 or 14 times our budget. But there's not necessarily logic to this idea of the guy holding the camera and shooting. You know, you watch the cuts, they're just done for energy reasons and yeah. for pace reasons, not necessarily for logic reasons. And it's not necessarily a better way to go. It was just one of the things that we thought about as we went along, how far do we want to take this? And at what point do we want to step into the area of the uh, illogical cuts? Yeah. The film within the film. I can't remember what the proper title is. I think it's... It, death of Death. Death of Death, that's it. I want to call it The Diary of Death. Did that come after you'd started the post process or? No, uh, no it had always been intended to be done this way, but the cutting style was different. We evolved, that evolved early in the process. When we first went in to sit down with the footage, it was not going to be the way it turned out. But the death of death was scripted. Now, what about with regards to pacing? Did you find, like you said, you were leaving the shots longer than usual. Did you have to rely more on the actors? Well, initially, that's what we had to do. We were, um, and it wasn't just that the actors were incapable of doing what was asked, because they did. Just that once we watched the scenes, we saw that there was, say, extra dialogue we didn't need. Mm -hmm. How are we going to get away with chopping out some of this dialogue without cutting? So the concept was interesting, but unworkable. Yeah. And so our cuts weren't just because we thought, well, we need to just move it along quicker, but there were lines of dialogue that were unnecessary. As I say, very early in the process, we decided that we were going to start cutting it. And the idea of having his girlfriend take the footage and try to create a diary because uh, towards the end she starts to realize what he was attempting and picks up the mantle. She was critical of what his, the idea of shooting while people were being attacked, you know, philosophically, but like say a, a war correspondent keeps shooting when uh, people are getting murdered. Well, right at the beginning the cameraman continued shooting. Part of their job is to record for history's sake and I think this is what part of the statement was. And she understood that at the end of the film, so took up the mantle and, uh, and cut it. Now, I know that um, in an ideal world, George would like to have continued that series by following the other characters' stories. So the Tracy character goes off in the van at one point. Mm -hmm. There's the possibility of picking up her story in another film down the road to see what happened to her, yeah. or to find out what happened to those that locked themselves in the safe room. Yeah. What's their story? 
Or, but we even have, because it looks like he started doing that with the soldiers that come on, then we see yes, the... Yes, that is a, a form of that, that's right. And we talked about that, that we could take a character, a minor character from one of the movies and then follow their story. Mm-hmm. It's been done a couple of times in books. Kurt Vonnegut did it uh, with some of his characters. And I like that idea. Right. And now the issue comes down to whether the fans would um, support it enough. I know that Survival of the Dead I really like Survival of the Dead, perhaps a little bit misunderstood by people. I think part of the criticism came from people saying, well, George is doing another zombie movie and it's like the third in a row, you know, it's time to do something different. Without being able to properly judge the film, they prejudged it because it's another zombie movie. And I think over time when people look back on this film and see the context that it was made in with this nonsense going on between the Republicans and the Democrats in the United States and neither side willing to see the other's point of view when in fact there may be something of interest that people will look back and see that you know George was making a pretty interesting well he's always been making those under underlying uh, statements he won't do one now without having something like that to start out you know it's interesting because we had talked the character who played the soldier in survival and who had robbed them in diary was also the soldier that was guarding the uh, compound in land of the dead and we had talked about possibly calling him brubaker which was the name of the character in land that he survived and this is now three years later and he's still around it didn't quite work out that way for various uh, possibly legal reasons i'm not yeah. sure but that is it idea the same actor too yeah like, same actor yeah, yeah. 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 element sprang is great and so, you know, George has thought about this concept of having minor characters and then just seeing where their story takes them because it allows him to keep making the movies within, say, the first month of the zombie yeah. uprising, so to speak, and, and see where it takes them. So there's lots of people who are extremely passionate zombie fans and in particular Romero fans. Did you feel any pressure when you were cutting the films to meet those expectations? George feels the pressure. I'm, you know, servicing George's vision. And so, I mean, we would discuss sometimes what we thought the fans might be looking for in a given scene. And I certainly know that for George, part of what fans want, not just the political message, but also cool zombie kills. So he has the pressure of coming up with cool zombie kills. And, you know, for me, it's to try and also make sure that the film, the way we cut the film, is to maximize the, either the tension or the scares, or, like in the case of survival, it wasn't even necessarily about that. It was more about, uh, the zombies were more of a um, nuisance, that it was really the story of these two guys butting heads politically over the direction that they should move in. And, you know, we were still dealing with issues of, you know, tension and, and, and scares, but not to the degree that we did in the earlier films. When I was reading up on the, the films, it appeared as though, or at least what I've read, is that they started, uh, Romero's first experiments with CGI were really in these 
films, did you find it difficult to work with CGI and, and zombies? Not so much. I think that, uh, you know, we had a couple of really good visual effects houses uh, working with us. And in the last couple of films, we worked with Spin and we worked with John Campins on Land of the Dead and uh, Tom Turnbull at Rocket Science. I think that it's important to have constant dialogue with the visual effects supervisor. That person is on set when they're shooting and when the dailies come in and we're getting ready to cut scenes that require their vision, I want them to be in the edit suite with me to pick yeah. the shots so that I know clearly where it's going to go and then as quickly as possible have the visual effects house give me temp versions because that affects pacing, uh, all that. And in terms of George's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean he had come out of the school the Greg Nicotero onset prosthetics, which he still uh, relied on all through land, through diary, less so on survival. Greg was also, I think, involved in other projects down in the US. But the CG allowed George to expand his vocabulary a little bit. I know some people may have complained that uh, it's giving into the modern uh, technology. I don't think so. I think it allows George to open his mind up to things that he would not have been able to do. I mean, there's only so many ways you can put a bullet through a zombie's head. So, uh, you know, to keep things fun and interesting. And with survival, the emphasis in part was on the fun because he clearly set us up at the beginning with that first zombie who gets shot in the head and the scalp rests up there for about half a second before gravity pulls it down. That's just an homage to an old yeah. cartoon killing, right? And he's saying, look, laugh if you want to laugh because we're going to have some fun with these yeah. and he's got the zombie with the eyes popping out and the, that's just stuff he couldn't do right he wouldn't have been able to pull it off uh, as uh, convincingly some people don't like that i think it's fun and i and i think if you take it in that vein that you're there to have some fun with it as well as at times get scared and get jumped and it's funny because the biggest scare in the film in survival doesn't involve the zombies at all it's what we were talking about before which is setting the audience up for something that doesn't happen. So when the kid goes walking through the forest to get the water and he's looking around and we're thinking there's possibly going to be a zombie jump here, it turns out that it's a bird that flies through the frame yeah. and the sound of the bird is what causes people to jump. That's fantastic. Now, George actually has done a lot of work as an editor himself. How did that influence your relationship in dealing with with the films? I mean, I don't know specifically. I know that he has points of view and it's interesting that you know, he'll watch the first cut and then we'll go in and we'll cut dialogue or we'll tighten dialogue. You know, a lot of the actors, and you do this on all films, they tend to, there are pauses in the line deliveries that some are natural, some not natural. And we have to go in and we tighten all that stuff up. And sometimes purely for pace reasons. And we focus on that right from the start once we've got the assembly done. And then uh, George is also very particular about the sound edit. So that while we are cutting, we are paying a lot of attention to our sound effects and sound design and foley. So when we're out in a forest, there's crickets and there's footsteps and there's twigs snapping. And there is no time when there's not something going on. And if you do have a pause in the dialogue or something happens, it's filled with some kind of sound. We build all that during the edit. Now I have one last question that I ask uh, all the editors that I interview, and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? Jeez, guilty pleasure film to watch. Oh, I have to think about that one. I mean, kind of like a schmaltzy movie. Yeah, that, like, uh, a, like a, a film that most people wouldn't be... Caught dead watching? 
Yeah. Well, that I'm or... a romantic at heart, so yeah, okay. shame to admit serendipity okay. would be the guilty pleasure. But then there's movies that, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. I could watch a hundred times, you know? It's just fun to watch. Fun to see how it's edited. And it's funny, when I first saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I didn't really get into it. And then over time, you just watch it and you go, oh, what a great design behind that film. The edit, everything. Really well thought out. Yeah. And one, oh, one other question for, do you prefer fast zombies or slow zombies? <laughs> uh, you know what? I like the slow zombies because the slow zombies are metaphorical. Well, thanks very much for letting me interview. Not a problem. Living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. So, Lauren, that was my interview with Michael Doherty. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had our first live streaming event. Yeah. And interestingly. Sure did. It was a good jumping off point. Yeah, we've learned some lessons and we're going to give it another shot uh, this month with uh, a talk from Paul Day that he's doing in my class. Oh, cool. Yeah, Excellent. So should be good. November's coming. Just days away. Make sure to vote on your mustache or my mustache. And donate some money to a good cause. Yeah. Um, it goes straight to the Movember site. doesn't even hit us at all. So don't have to worry. It's totally legitimate. There was the one donor already. Mm -hmm. um, to give it a little bit of a head start, but if you don't reach $300, Gord's going to do really lame pictures of his mouth. Yep. <laughs> so, so, get pictures of his face by getting it up to 300 bucks. Maybe, you know, if everybody puts in a 20, we can get there. Yeah. Now, we don't have a uh, addition to our forward film review for this week. Mm -hmm. Reason being is that been really focused on getting this Halloween special Halloween edition up and so I just haven't gotten one together for us. That's all right. Uh, so Lauren, what are you going to go out as for, for Halloween? Halloween? Um, I don't know, maybe um, someone with um, a touch of the cold and dog to walk. Hmm. That's probably what I'll go as this year. Unfortunately, we don't get any traffic. Um, so we just buy candy and eat it ourselves. Yes, we live in a dangerous area. No, that's there was not a it. shooting here uh, last that's month. Not, that's not it, because we are um, in a condo and only about eight people have access to our to our floor. So yeah. nobody comes by. So we don't have anyone to give candy to. So we eat no. it. Um, do even if you don't intend to donate or vote. Just check out the Movember stuff. Always good to get traffic going in that direction. Yeah, and you um, can see the link right on the side. Yeah. Um, we'll have more about Paul Day's talk later in next week's episode. Mm -hmm. He's the editor of Rookie Blue, Lost Girl, The Line, and a few other great shows. And he's cut all over Canada and I think I think a bit in the U.S. for Showcase. or Currently Toronto-based. Yep. And so he said he'd come talk to my students about cutting for television and we said hey is it cool if we record your stuff and stream it super okay well i'd like to thank uh the canadian cinema editors as well as michael doherty for doing the interview with me i'd also like to thank lauren woodcock my producer Cow. i'm gordon burkell thanks for listening <laughs>